Will Ukraine finally get an invitation to join NATO? The lead starts right now. President Biden wheels down ahead of the critical NATO summit and Ukraine pushing, pushing, pushing to join the roster. CNN is live as leaders from the 31 member nations meet. Plus, calling him out. Why special counsel Jack Smith is accusing Donald Trump's right-hand man, Walt Nada, of trying to delay the federal government's prosecution of him in the classified documents case. And the once-in-a-thousand-year rainfall behind devastating flooding in parts of America's northeast, including here in New York. The dramatic scenes as water forces its way into homes, trapping drivers on roads and forcing some to swim to safety. Welcome to Lean Up, Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead, President Biden landing in Lithuania this afternoon with one goal at the top of his list, unity during dangerous, trying times. The NATO summit officially kicks off in a few hours in the city of Vilnius. Ukraine will be the main focus of the two-day meeting, but for a group that has been, frankly, stunningly united since Russia's invasion, there are public fractures in the alliance starting to emerge ones President Biden will have to fix over the next two days, mainly over the president's decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine's front lines, a weapon banned by more than 100 countries, including most of the allies who will be sitting around President Biden at that table in Lithuania. The world leaders will also have to decide when and how they will let Ukraine join NATO, a move President Biden told CNN cannot begin until the war is over. Moments ago, we learned of another major development before the summit even starts. We're going to have more on that in a moment. But let's start with CNN's Nick Robertson in London, where President Biden met with a key ally earlier today to kick off his trip. And also with us, CNN's Natasha Bertrand, who is in Vilnius, Lithuania, ahead of tomorrow's summit. Natasha, Ukrainian leaders have they've been making it clear they are looking for NATO members to take concrete steps towards Ukraine's membership. Do we expect any decisions to be made on that front, though? You know, it's really difficult to say at this point, Jake, there could be some decisions about perhaps fast tracking Ukraine's membership into NATO. The Ukrainian foreign minister tweeted today that there had been indications that there was some sort of agreement among the alliance that Ukraine could potentially skip some steps uh, to joining NATO. But it is unclear whether they will actually get that invitation. And that is something, of course, that President Zelensky has been pushing for for months and months. They want that formal invitation. They want the concrete timetable, if not an invitation, for when they're actually going to be able to join the alliance. Because, of course, this is existential for them. Joining the alliance means having the support of the entire, uh, every NATO country behind them, uh, should Russia attack them, uh, of course, in the future, after there is a peace. But that is something that the alliance still has not come to an agreement on. And as we heard President Biden say over the weekend, he does not think right now that Ukraine is ready to join NATO. He believes that they still need to make a number of reforms before they can before they can join. And of course, the war in Ukraine needs to end. And so this is something that's going to be top of mind over the next two days for the alliance as they figure out a path forward uh, for the Ukrainians, Jake. And and Nick, there's also some important context in the sense that this meeting of NATO comes right after the Wagner mercenary group's short-lived revolt in Russia. Also, the meeting location is only 20 miles from the border of Belarus. That's a country that has aided Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So NATO leaders, they seem to be trying to put on this united front. But from your observations, does it look like that united front is actually real? 
You know, it's the Baltic states in the north that are, that are closest to Belarus who feel it the most. And I think it's these geographical decisions that have always sort of dogged this unity. The unity has been there, but the Baltics have been more forward-leaning, the Nordics more forward-leaning, some of the southern European nations, and perhaps France and Germany are less so as well. They've been slower to come on board with some of their support, military support for Ukraine. But in terms of where, things, where, where, where the ground lies right now ahead of this summit... I think there is a relative degree of, of unity still. And I think the announcement over Sweden's accession to NATO, you just referenced it there, I think that is significant because at least it removes one of the big pieces that was sort of an ugly piece sitting on the jigsaw, sitting next to the jigsaw puzzle. That's sort of getting in place now. Um, in terms of the cluster munitions, look, I think what we heard from the British Prime Minister today, his spokesman saying, yes, when he was with President Biden, he did address the issue that as a signatory to the uh, cluster munitions convention, that he has to dissuade uh, others from using them. And that did come up in the conversation. But then he went on to say, look, I understand the position that President Biden was in. So I think, you know, there's an understanding uh, that these are tensions, but they're not things that are going to rip apart right now. That's, I think, where we're at. So, Nick, you just made reference to this. But moments ago, we learned a deal has been made when it comes to Sweden's bid to join NATO. Tell us about that, about the holdup and what's included in the agreement. Yeah, this is Jens Stoltenberg, uh, Secretary General of NATO, meeting with President Erdogan and the, uh, and the uh, uh, Swedish Prime Minister, Ulf Christensen. This is a significant move. Only hours earlier, it seemed that uh, President Erdogan was holding the whole deal up because he said he wanted to become a member of the, the European Union, which he was being blocked on. So what has Sweden done here is given some additional security guarantees to uh, Turkey over and above the fact that it's already changed its constitution and laws to meet the demands that Turkey made last year about some terror groups. Um, it's added another couple of countries. Those terror groups is going to improve its economic ties and relations. It's going to have annual meetings with Turkey and it's going to start reselling Turkey weapons again. All of that to get into NATO. But it looks like they're there. All right, Nick Robertson in London and Natasha Bertrand in uh, Lithuania. Thanks to both of you. Also on the NATO agenda is future security assistance for Ukraine. Experts tell CNN they're watching to see if that future security assistance includes more F-16 fighter jets. But before the meeting begins, allies are making it clear they're not going to be joining the U.S. when it comes to sending controversial cluster bombs to the front lines, which can fail and then detonate years later, risking civilian lives. CNN's Alex Marquardt is live in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev for us. And Alex, the White House continuing to defend the decision. President Biden said it wasn't an easy decision, but it was the one he reached. What's the reaction there on the ground? Well, Jake, the Ukrainians are quite happy to be receiving them. Uh, This is something that they've been asking for for quite some time. We've done a lot of reporting around the lobbying efforts that Ukrainian officials have made uh, to get the Biden administration to send these very controversial, controversial munitions. The arguments that we have heard time and time again from Ukrainian officials would later be echoed by the Biden administration, essentially that these cluster munitions will only be used against Russian troops. They won't be used in civilian areas. Of course, Russia is already using cluster munitions uh, here in Ukraine. Uh, The Ukrainians have argued that these will be much more effective. Jake, these these cluster munitions, uh, they're called depickums. They're fired uh, from an artillery cannon. They're 155 millimeters. They are much more lethal than your standard 155 millimeter shell. And so the Ukrainians have said that they will be much more effective against those Russian troops at a very critical moment. 
in this counteroffensive, which is progressing uh, quite slowly. Now, it is interesting, Jake, when we heard from the Biden administration, what they did emphasize was that it was a supply issue. Um, they acknowledge that they would be more effective, but right now the Biden administration has been arguing that Ukraine has been running low on the more traditional art- artillery shells. Jake. Alex, do we know if Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky plans to actually go to Lithuania to, to visit the NATO summit? Not yet. Uh, there's a very good chance, but he hasn't announced it. We just heard his nightly address. He did say that there would be a number of bilateral meetings by Ukrainian officials with uh, European, European and, and NATO partners. Uh, we know, of course, that there is a meeting of the NATO-Ukraine uh, Council. The Secretary General of, uh, the, of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, said that Zelensky would take part. Uh, not clear whether that means virtual or in person. Uh, he has been traveling quite a bit lately. Um, So there is a very good chance that he goes. But Zelensky has said firmly that he's not going to go just for fun. He wants some concrete results from this meeting. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt in Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss the former deputy director of national intelligence, Beth Sander, also with us, Steve Hall, who was the former CIA chief for Russia operations. Beth, uh, President Biden said ahead of the summit that Ukraine should not be able to join NATO until the war is over. He also said they're not ready. Multiple NATO officials told CNN that those comments were regrettable because they take away the focus from all the things NATO has done for Ukraine and focus instead on what NATO is not doing for Ukraine. Do you agree that that's a big distraction? Yes and no. I mean, I think that uh, President Biden is known for sometimes just saying exactly what he's thinking. But let's also keep in mind that President Zelensky has said publicly that he does not expect uh, Ukraine to join NATO until after the war. And what he's looking for are concrete steps. But I, I get the point that by making that statement, you are distracting everybody from the fact of all the things that need to be done at this summit in terms of creating that that very concrete roadmap. And, you know, my concern is that they won't have um, a- enough detail in that plan. Steve, do you think President Zelensky is going to go to the NATO summit? Uh, and do you think NATO leaders are going to make him any kinds of assurances about Ukraine membership? Yes and yes. Uh, I think he will go. But I think any assurances that are given uh, to, to President Zelensky, especially the more meaty ones, the, the more serious ones, will probably be done behind closed doors. Because, of course, although Ukraine does have an official contact point with uh, with NATO, it's not a NATO member yet. So NATO is going to be a little bit careful. Uh, and, and the leadership, I think, is going to be cautious with regard to what they say uh, publicly. I mean, it is bureaucratically. I mean, NATO's a bureaucracy like any other large organization. And there are things that a country has to do to join. Those could, of course, be waived. Um, but it doesn't sound like NATO is there yet with regard to with regard to Ukraine at this exact moment. Steve, this meeting comes on the heels of that failed mutiny in Russia by the Wagner mercenary group. Um, how closely do you think Putin is watching what happens in Lithuania? And how how remarkable do you think it is that this has kind of just been swept under the rug and disappeared, this major uprising that disappeared in a matter of a day or two? Yeah, so I think that there's no doubt that, that Putin is going to be watching what happens in, in the NATO summit very carefully because NATO is always a, always a big thing for him. It's probably his number one uh, threat besides perhaps the United States itself. 
But I mean, you know, if you had told, you know, Beth and I, when we worked together you know, years ago at CIA that, hey, this is what's going to happen. You know, this this warlord's going to almost make it to Moscow and then he's going to have a three hour meeting, supposedly, if you believe what the Kremlin says with Putin after Putin called him a traitor. I mean, it's just it's just crazy what's going on. And I think what's what's going on. The reason that you're seeing that is because Putin is really concerned with re- with regard to Prigozhin, with regard to the support he got, and perhaps with regard to the elite inside the Kremlin who is watching all of this and wondering about Putin and his long-term viability. And Beth, obviously, it's not just Ukraine that wants to join NATO. What, what do you make the announcement just moments ago that Turkey is uh, doing an about-face and it is going to support Sweden's bid to join the NATO alliance? I mean, isn't this fascinating? Um, In the call yesterday with President Biden, uh, between President Biden and and President Erdogan, Erdogan has been, you know, negotiating essentially quid pro quos, even though no one says it out loud. F-16s, other guarantees. um, This really isn't about Sweden. Uh, This is about the United States and Turkey and Turkey's role. He played his hand too hard by putting the EU membership on the table. And I think he, you know, he really wants to be seen by NATO as as the person who comes in and saves the day, not as the spoiler. And all of a sudden he, he played his hand a little bit too much and he started looking like the spoiler. And I think he had to back off. So um, here we are. And it's a it's a really good day. But there are real complications coming up now between Erdogan and Putin um, that will have to be worked out. Yeah, Beth Sanders, Steve Hall, thanks to both of you for your expertise. Coming up, the deadline Donald Trump faces today in the classified documents prosecution against him and the legal pushback from the man, his right-hand man, accused of hiding his boxes at Mar-a-Lago, plus the strong opinions about Trump tearing apart the united front of Republicans in the House of Representatives and how comedian Sarah Silverman is taking on artificial intelligence in a new lawsuit. In our Law and Justice League today, today is the deadline for former President Donald Trump and his aide, Walt Nada, to suggest a trial date in that classified documents prosecution. The Justice Department has asked for the trial to begin in mid-December. Let's turn to some of the most informed voices on everything in Trump legal world. We have with us Caitlin Collins, CNN anchor of The Source, which premieres tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig and, of course, The New York Times' Maggie Haberman. Uh, So, Caitlin... I mean, I don't even know who to start with because it's just like a bounty of, of brilliant people. But I'll start with you. Uh, the deadline comes as we're hearing special counsel Jack Smith's investigation uh, into efforts to overturn the 2020 election results could be coming to a close. What are you hearing about that timeline? Yeah, it's not totally clear to anyone. I think especially the attorneys of the people who may very well get indicted in this investigation when this is actually going to happen. But people are bracing for it. It's something that they're kind of every day trying to read the tea leaves to see what's going to happen. I think the reason they think it's going to happen in the near future, however you define that, is because there's been a lot of activity within his office. He has been bringing people in. The people who appear... Jack to, Smith has been bringing people in. And yeah. they've been with very aggressive deadlines. They don't, they're not allowing people to delay and come in later or postpone. It's a very quick turnaround of when they want to hear from people. And so I think it's raising questions of what this is going to look like and, of course, what he's asking the people who are coming in about, which are key moments here with the fake electors, that crazy Oval Office meeting... Those are all the things that they believe uh, it could be the end of the investigation. So you and I go way back when it comes to that December 18th Oval Office investigation, because you and I talked, because right after you found out about it, you and I spoke on the phone and you were really 
worried because there are these powerful people talking about unconstitutional things, martial law, seizing the voting machine. So we know that special counsel Jack Smith uh, is now looking into the meeting. How might this play in into the investigation? In a couple of ways, Jake. I mean, I think one way is that they're looking at Trump's mindset, for one, the fact that that meeting took place a couple of hours before. And, he, you know, the, the meeting ended without him signing any of these executive orders that were for not special draft. counsel. Right, for Sidney Powell. To a special counsel oh, or, or to, seize, to, to seize voting machines and to use the government apparatus to do so. None of these orders were drafted by his White House. Um, it ended without him taking action on that, but it, let, it was a couple of hours before he first tweeted, you know, come to this rally people January 6th. on January 6th will be wild. Will be wild. So yeah. one is mindset. I think one is how he wanted to use the government and was thinking about using the government. Uh, but we don't know exactly what might come of it. We do know from a number of people who have been interviewed, to Caitlin's point, a bunch of folks have been in. There has been a focus on the lawyers. There's been a focus on Sidney Powell in particular, who was in that meeting. And because there are so many tentacles of this January 6th investigation, this is not the documents case, which was a discrete fact set. This is very different, and it could play out in a number of ways. And, Emily, let's talk about that, because if he does, if Special Counsel Jack Smith does indict Donald Trump on this, in the January 6th investigation, how on earth do courts manage Three different indictments you have in the hush money case in New York, you have in the classified documents case, you also have the January 6th, and then also potentially uh, the Georgia election medley. I mean, how does a court system even begin to, to maneuver this? We use this phrase unprecedented quite a bit. I, I've never heard or seen anybody who's been under three different indictments, if we get one more, never mind four, from four different jurisdictions at the same time. This will be a mess. Oh, right, because classified documents is in Florida and exactly. January 6th would theoretically be in D.C. Right, and then we would have state, we have the state charge here in Manhattan. And what I think is going to happen, some of this could play to Donald Trump's advantage because his best defense here, his best strategy is delay. You can't, we will not try three or four cases between now and the election. I think it's not even 100% certain that we will try one of them. And ultimately, you would think, can't these prosecutors get together and prioritize because I think we can all agree, anyone can agree, if you take the allegations as true, January 6th is the most important. Right. The documents are second. And Alvin Bragg's case is far, far behind. Yet he's the only one who has a concrete trial that he's really taking up the prime trial real estate now in March and April. They, they can coordinate, but there's no indication they have done that. On yet. the classified documents case, today the special counsel, Jack Smith, yeah. accused Trump aide Walt Nada of trying to delay, specifically saying his lawyer wasn't prepared uh, for this hearing scheduled for Friday because his lawyer is going to be in D.C. W what do you make of this? Delay is a strategy. Delay is the strategy here. Every step of the way, Donald Trump and Walt Nauta, two defendants, are going to drag their feet and delay and kick and scream. It's going to be like— Is that normal, though? Yes. Yeah. We used to say it's like trying to put a toddler to bed, right. right? Delay, 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 drag it out. But it's a strategy here. And this is just a proceeding to discuss— how the proceeding is going to go. And yet even so, Walt Nauta is saying, well, one of my lawyers is out of town. Let's push it off. DOJ's right to push back. And I think the judge is going to reject the effort to postpone here. And Caitlin, the deadline the Trump legal team is facing today to tell the court their preferred timeline for this trial date. Uh, what do you think Trump's strategy would be when it comes to selecting the date? Because he can't obviously just delay it forever. That's not an option. He would like for it to be after the 2024 election and in between that period between then and inauguration. I mean, they, they, they in their minds, think this is not going to happen before the 2024 election. Now, whether or not Judge Cannon goes along with that, that is the wild card here to see what that looks like. Obviously, Jack Smith has proposed this date of a December trial date. They don't think it's going to happen then, but they will try to push it. But, I mean, we just found out the Iowa caucuses are going to be on January 15th. Right. So it's all of those, you know, prime trial real estate was a great phrase. 
but it's all of those competing factors. But they are going to try to push it as far as they can. So, Maggie, obviously Trump's out there saying that every time he gets indicted, his poll numbers go up. And there is some validity yeah. to that. But in December, if there is this classified documents case uh, begins there. And let's just remember, this is a case that he's been bashed by his former defense secretary, his former attorney general, his former chief of staff, John Kelly, and on and on and on. Um, do you think that that taking place one month before the Iowa caucuses could actually maybe hurt him? That's the big X factor to me, Jake. We have not seen a dynamic where he is having to face evidence being presented every day, witnesses testifying every day. It would also depend on how much it's breaking through and how much voters care and what else is happening in the world. But I do think it's an unknown. It's certainly something the other candidates who are competing against him in the Republican primary and in the Iowa caucuses are hoping will happen. They are hoping that this trial takes place before the caucuses. That is in some ways their best bet, because otherwise, I guess you have to explain to me what's going to stop him. We don't know what's going to happen. Predictions are are not of much value, as we know. But so far, it's two indictments, and it has done nothing to shake his voters. So we will see if an actual trial is the thing that does that. If this all does get pushed until after the 2024 election, yeah. the, 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 the more serious cases, not Alvin Bragg, and Donald Trump wins, can he just dismiss the special count? I mean, like, what, what happens legally? If this gets pushed beyond the election and he wins, they're all dead on the vine. All four of them, let's say, hypothetically. First of all, the federal cases... Donald Trump can either order his DOJ, dismiss those, or he can pardon himself. We don't know if that's constitutional, but the only way to challenge it is DOJ would have to indict him and then they litigate it, but it will be his DOJ at that point. The two state cases, we don't have any sort of case law on point, but I will just tell you there is no possible chance that state level prosecutors will be permitted to try a sitting president. So this is all or nothing for him if he can get it pushed. All right. Ellie Honig, Megan Haberman and Caitlin Collins. Thanks to all of you. And don't forget to join Caitlin tonight for the debut of her brand new show. It's called The Source. Her first guests include Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia and Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, who's holding up all of those military promotions. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up next, tension inside one of the most conservative circles in Congress, the secret sessions, the hidden agendas. Is all the pressure reaching a boiling point? Stay with us. In our politics lead, the far-right House Freedom Caucus has been a perennial thorn in the side of Republican leadership forever. Most recently, 18 of its 20 members were among those who voted against Kevin McCarthy during January's protracted House Speaker election. But as the group's membership has expanded, fractures have grown within the caucus over tactics and Trump and allegiances to House leadership. Those tensions boiling over last month with the expulsion of Republican firebrand Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live for us on Capitol Hill. Now, Melanie, what exactly led the group to push out Congresswoman Greene? Well, Jake, it really boils down to the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene has become such a close ally of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And the Freedom Caucus feels like this runs counter to their founding mission, which is to be a thorn in the side of leadership. But tensions have gotten so high and they feel like they can't trust Greene to the point where I'm told that there is now this little subgroup that has been having these secret side meetings to talk strategy because they didn't feel like they could trust Marjorie Taylor Greene to be in the room and not essentially go tell on them to Speaker McCarthy about their tactics. I wanna read you what one of those members told me. They said, people don't feel comfortable talking in Freedom Caucus meetings because of Marjorie and others, so the group is sort of broken up. 
The Freedom Caucus is not what it was when former Republican House Speaker John Boehner was in office. And indeed, the group has been struggling to find its footing and find its real sense of purpose in the post-Trump years. And since Republicans have taken the majority, they have been split over tactics, over strategy, and even over whether to support former President Donald Trump. In this course of this recording with my colleague Annie Greer, we learned that there was actually two Freedom Caucus members, Chip Roy and Ken Buck, who contemplated quitting the Freedom Caucus after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. They were two members that were very vocal about not supporting Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. Now, they ultimately stayed in the group, but since then they have become some of these Freedom Caucus members who have been deviating from the pack and often find themselves doing their own thing. So just a lot of growing concern in the Freedom Caucus about the future of this group as they wrestle with their identity, Jake. And we should note, Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, who co-founded the caucus and was the group's first chairman, he has also grown increasingly close to House leadership, uh, Kevin McCarthy and the like. Uh, Has he been spared from criticism? It's a really interesting, Jake, because he hasn't been getting as many arrows as Marjorie Taylor Greene, in part because he isn't as vocal about his ties to leadership. He isn't as vocally critical of some of his House Freedom Caucus colleagues for not falling in line. But we have learned that behind the scenes, there has been growing resentment towards even Jim Jordan, someone who has been a conservative staple on the right. We're told that Bob Good, a conservative member of the Freedom Caucus, has been calling Jim Jordan a rhino, a Republican in name only, behind his back. And we're also told that Jim Jordan was one of the few Freedom Caucus members who actually supported keeping green in the Freedom Caucus. So just some more prominent examples of how the Freedom Caucus has really split, Jake. Hmm. Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Uh, For some insights, let's bring in former Republican congressman, CNN political commentator, uh, Adam Kinzinger. Uh, Congressman, uh, good to see you. When you were in Congress, the House Freedom Caucus was at times an extremely powerful group. Its members essentially forced Speaker John Boehner to resign back in 2015. Uh, They might even be more powerful now because McCarthy's margin is so slim, four or five votes. So what do you make of all this, Uh, the growing fractures within the caucus, booting Marjorie Taylor Greene out because they can't trust her? They think that she's eyes and ears for Kevin McCarthy and all the rest. Well, you just hate to see it, don't you? I mean, look, it's this. The the irony of this is if you go back to when we had our broader conference meetings and that's when the Republican members of Congress get together and talk strategy. It was always the freedom. I call it the Freedom Club, the Freedom Club or Freedom Caucus people that were the ones that would go out and and tell the press everything that happened in there. And so they were formed initially as you know, their idea was we're going to get conservative policy by basically stopping everything short of whatever our goalpost is and then moving that goalpost. I was a conservative that believed you, you don't legislatively terrorize. You actually keep the government running and try to advance as conservatively as you can in that context. And so there was a lot of, of, of stress and fracture. And now what's happened is you have a party, Jake, that's not based on principle anymore. I hate to say it. It's true. It's not based on smaller government. It's based on whatever the outrage of the day is or support for Donald Trump. And when you have a personality or you have a, an institution based on nothing but kind of the whims of the moment, there's going to be fracture because it turns into personalities and it turns into fundraising. And I think that's a lot of what you're seeing right now. So there's one conservative House lawmaker often aligned with the group who told CNN the Freedom Caucus's days are, quote, numbered. It is interesting that, that this individual wouldn't go on the record, which shows the Freedom Caucus is still pretty powerful. But do you, do you agree with that basic idea that, that its days are numbered? Yeah, I think so. Because 
It was founded for the sole goal of basically tanking stuff that they didn't want to have happen. When you're in the majority, it's difficult to do that because you either pass nothing or you end up passing stuff that there's no way the rest of the country is going to support. Well, when you're not based then on principles, people are sitting around trying to kind of live their old days in high school, in essence, in the early days of the Freedom Club. And instead, it's become about how can we fundraise? How can we create an outrage to raise money? By the way, a whole nother conversation is about the fundraising problem in this country. And it turns into a personality conflict. And when, when it's at the House of Representatives, we all love to pretend like we're the nicest people in the world. The truth is, a lot of people in politics are, are killers, politically speaking. And it's hard to just get along with somebody because you like them. So that's what you're seeing now is this kind of devolution of an interest in ideas and kind of an evolution into fundraising and personalities. As you remember, no doubt, House Speaker John Boehner once referred to the Freedom Caucus as, quote, legislative terrorists. They basically forced his resignation. Since then, uh, it's, I think, fair to say that their views, which were once considered far right, have become much more mainstream uh, within the Republican Party since Donald Trump took over the party, at least. How much do you think that explains what's going on with this group? The fact that, you know, they're basically the dog that caught the bus. I I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I I think, you know, I could go through if we had a 20 minute segment, some of the, you know, the dealings I had with them and some of those areas. But over time, particularly with, keep in mind, a lot of these folks were against Donald Trump until he became president and they became his biggest allies. And so, yeah, they ended up getting a lot of what they wanted. A lot of what they want is dysfunction. And I'm not saying that to be mean. It's just true. They don't believe in the role of the federal government. They don't believe it should be doing anything at all, really, or much, if anything. And, uh, and so now they're sitting there basically with a speaker that, frankly, has been towing the line with what they've been demanding. Uh, he's, he gave a lot of concessions to become speaker. That's pretty obvious. And so now it's like, what's the purpose of this? You know, if the whole Republican Party, the Republican caucus is now the Freedom Club, why do you need a Freedom Club? And so I think that's a lot of what they're dealing with. And so it'll probably continue in name only. There'll be the Freedom uh, Finos, Freedom Club in name only. Uh, but I, I do think its days are limited. Speaking of in name only, I mean, what do you make of the fact that members of the House Freedom Caucus are referring to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan uh, as unreliable conservatives? One of them, I think it was Congressman Good, uh, referring to Jim Jordan as a rhino. I mean, these are MAGA stalwarts. Because, Jake, conservatism has no meaning anymore. I mean, people don't think I'm a conservative, but if I went through a litany of things that I believe, you'd see that I'm pretty center right. I would consider myself a conservative, but that doesn't matter anymore. What it is now is an allegiance to Donald Trump or whatever the outrage is. Maybe it's Disney today. You know, maybe it's Target today. Whatever that outrage is, is now what defines conservatism. So, you know, Jim Jordan, I think, falls completely in line with that definition, and so does Marjorie Taylor Greene, but that's where the personality issue comes into play. Jim Jordan is his own person. He doesn't need the Freedom Caucus because he's famous and can raise money. Marjorie Taylor Greene's the same thing. People are jealous of that, and they also look and say, I don't need you guys anymore. Interesting. Former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, good to see you as always. Coming up next, homes lost, property destroyed, and now at least one person has been killed. The havoc being wreaked in the northeast of the United States of America as some areas get the worst flooding they've seen in years. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, extreme and excessive flooding covering much of the northeastern United States right now, especially parts of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, 
and the Hudson Valley, just north of New York City. The aftermath from Sunday's severe storms still pummeling these areas, swamping roadways, trapping drivers, forcing dozens of rescues. Search and rescue teams say they have rescued at least 50 people just in Vermont today. The sheer strength of these floodwaters killing at least one woman in New York State who was swept away. Meteorologist Chad Myers reports now for us on the dangerous rainfall that has put millions under flood alerts. Deadly flooding drenches the Northeast. Historic rainfall killing at least one person, dozens of others rescued from life-threatening floodwaters. Nearly 9 million people are under flood alerts right now, with more than 8 inches of rain falling in a 24-hour period in some parts of New York. Homes inundated with water in Rockland County. (gasps) Look at the people's doors! Just north, in West Point, more than 7.5 inches fell in just 6 hours on Sunday. That's a 1 in 1,000-year rainfall event for that area, according to CNN analysis of NOAA's data. In Orange County, one woman was swept away by floodwaters. She was in the bottom of a ravine. Their county executive says emergency services conducted about 50 significant water rescues. And right now there are no reports of anyone missing. I saw Army, uh, active duty Army soldiers up to their bellies. We were walking to cars to make sure that people got out. 80-year-old Richard Byers says this is some of the worst flooding he's ever seen. He was rescued by boat from his home on Sunday. I just, I just depressed and sad that this is happening. I, mean, I knew I was going to lose a lot of stuff. People being forced from their homes and cars all across the Northeast. Bro, I just watched my car just swim away. Reading, Pennsylvania, shattering its 70-year-old daily rainfall record by nearly two inches. Vermont also hit incredibly hard, and it's still raining. The state search and rescue coordinator declaring some towns inaccessible Monday afternoon. We have a swift water team uh, in that area trying to gain access so we can continue doing welfare checks. At least 19 people were rescued and two dozen more evacuated as flash flooding continues in the state. (laughs) Neighboring Massachusetts sending their emergency task force members to help out. It's going on for days and uh, that's my concern. There's more, Jake. There's more rain falling right now. I know that seems inconceivable to the people up here that have dealt with this now for 36 hours. But Burlington getting the heaviest rainfall right now, and that's not going to stop. This is almost nor'easter type weather with wind coming in off the ocean, blowing in more humidity, blowing in more rain. It is not snow. This is a significant flash flood event for the Northeast. All right, Chad Myers, thank you so much. Comedian Sarah Silverman says artificial intelligence is ripping her off. Her new lawsuit against two tech giants is next. In our tech lead today, comedian Sarah Silverman is taking on two tech giants. She's suing Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, plus OpenAI, that's the maker of ChatGPT. Silverman says they used her words without her approval. This could open the door to a potential major challenge to the future of artificial intelligence. Sarah Fisher is the senior media reporter at Axios and a CNN media analyst. Sarah, how could this present a serious legal challenge to the content used by AI tools? Explain what's going on here. 
Yeah, Jake. So when you take a look at some of these big artificial intelligence platforms, they need to train their algorithms off of something. Now, typically they're going after large data sets. That's why you've seen companies like Reddit and Twitter try to lock down some of their data. In this case, Sarah Silverman and two other authors are alleging that Meta and OpenAI, which is the company that is the parent to ChatGPT, leveraged data sets that included their works, meaning it included their books without their permission. They also say that when they presented summaries of their books to users, they didn't explain any of the copyright information. Now, it's a big deal, Jake, because if these big companies are found legally liable for illegally using some of this information, it would dramatically change how they can train their algorithms to make this stuff useful to everyday consumers like you and me. The challenge, though, of course, is that long term, we're going to have to see so many of these court cases play out in order to understand really to what extent they're battling copyright law or not. So the head of OpenAI has said that their company is working on ways, if AI is using your material or your style, that you'll get paid for that. Uh, Is that practical, though? Well, if we can come up with some sort of a legal liability framework, then yes, it would be practical. You know, if you think about other industries, let's take music, for example. We do have third-party sort of payment processors that can dictate how artists get paid when various tech platforms stream their music. You know, there could be ways in which these types of open AI companies can figure out ways to pay various artists, publishers, musicians, et cetera, for their works when they're being used to train their algorithms. In fact, a lot of news companies are already having those conversations with AI platforms, but those terms have not yet been set. And so in the interim, that's what gives people like Sarah Silverman and various authors and musicians sort of a legal framework to be able to sue these companies because they have not yet gotten paid. I'm also reminded of of when uh, there were the the digitization uh, of whole libraries by Google. Google would digitize libraries. And that's different in the sense that they're not stealing, they're not plagiarizing. But is that relevant at all to this? I mean, you can learn from instances in the past and how we've come up with other models to train algorithms. I mean, artificial intelligence is becoming more advanced, but it's not entirely new. What's different here and what Sarah Silverman and these other authors are alleging is that not only did you find our works and digitize them, but you summarized them without our permission and you didn't disclose to anybody that these are copyright protected works. I think in the future, we should expect to see a lot more lawsuits like that. All right, Sarah Fisher, fascinating, fascinating case. Coming up next, what the Kremlin is saying and and not saying about that three-hour meeting uh, that they say Putin had uh, with Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, trying to take the zip out of the summer's hottest new energy drink, there are claims that a single can of Prime has more than six times the amount of caffeine as one can of Coca-Cola. And teens, they're drinking it up, what every parent out there needs to know. Plus, the Trump legal team facing a new deadline in the classified documents prosecution, how their legal maneuvers could have a major impact on the 2024 presidential race. But leading this hour, to be a fly on the wall in that meeting, if it actually happened, the Kremlin now says Russian President Vladimir Putin met with Wagner mercenary group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin just five days after the mercenary group's failed mutiny at the end of June that attempted to oust Russia's top military leaders. That meeting reportedly lasting three hours and including at least 30 top military commanders, the Kremlin says. Prigozhin's current whereabouts, however, 
are not publicly known. CNN international correspondent Fred Plykin joins us now. Fred, what is the Kremlin saying about this meeting between Putin and Prigozhin? Well, first of all, that they acknowledge the meeting is certainly something that a lot of people, not just here, but in Russia, I can tell you as well, I've been speaking to some folks, they think that that was pretty remarkable also, because if we keep in mind that when that mutiny happened, Vladimir Putin recorded a message. He went on in front of the Russian public and he called this a betrayal. He essentially called Yevgeny Prigozhin a traitor. The Kremlin themselves said that Yevgeny Prigozhin was going to have to go essentially to exile into Belarus. Now we're learning that Prigozhin was inside the Kremlin with 35 other commanders just a couple of days after that mutiny took place. And the Kremlin also, Jake, gave some details as to what was spoken about. They said that Vladimir Putin listened to what these commanders had to say. Apparently, they all pledged allegiance to Vladimir Putin. But there was one thing that really caught our attention. I want to read you some of what the Kremlin spokesman said today. He said, quote, The president gave an assessment of the actions of the campaign at the front during the special military operation, so essentially how the war is going, as well as the events of June 24th. That, of course, being the mutiny that was directed by Evgeny Prigozhin. Then he goes on to say, Putin listened to the explanations provided by the commanders and offered them further options for deployment and further combat use. Now, there are some who believe that that could mean that the Wagner private military company could make a comeback to the battlefields of Ukraine. Of course, unclear what role, if any, Yevgeny Prigozhin would play in all of that. It certainly seemed to a lot of people that he was down and out in Russia, but obviously still getting some face time with Vladimir Putin, Jake. Meanwhile, as the Kremlin is putting out this information on this alleged meeting, Prigozhin's whereabouts remain unclear? Yeah, they remain uh, unclear. Of course, we had heard that he was apparently supposed to go to Belarus. Then late last week, uh, the leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, told our own Matthew Chance that he was actually uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin in St. Petersburg uh, in Russia. Now, the Belarusians had shown the media a camp that apparently could be used by Wagner mercenaries if they went to Belarus, but that camp was completely empty. So right now, it's unclear whether or not Yevgeny Prigozhin is still in St. Petersburg in Russia, whether or not he's in Moscow, but it certainly at this point in time still appears as though he is able to get in and out of the Kremlin and speak to Vladimir Putin, Jake. All right, Fred Plytkin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just in to CNN, President Biden, we're told, will meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the NATO summit, which kicks off tomorrow in Lithuania. That's according to an official familiar with the meeting. Zelensky's attendance at the summit had been in question as he's pushing for Ukraine to be admitted to the NATO alliance. Let's bring in former Defense Secretary under President Trump, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, good to see you. How important do you think this meeting is uh, between Biden and Zelensky? And do you think it's a sign that perhaps Zelensky will be given a path to future membership for Ukraine? Well, thanks, Jake. Good to be with you, first of all. But uh, yes, it's a very good sign because Zelensky was very public about the not going to Vilnius if if he was just going to be a participant, if you will. He wanted something tangible. And of course, it's the United States and, and Hungary, to some degree, are the ones who've been holding out with regard to a, a, a membership now in, um, in, in NATO, or, or at least a very clear path to membership. So I think it's quite significant that he's he's going. And we'll all be curious to see what that uh, what that offer looks like. But clearly, most agree that uh, Ukraine needs a clear path uh, all understand that it, that that membership will not be offered in Vilnius uh, this week, but a very clear, substantive path is what is uh, Zelensky and others are looking for. 
So what do you make of the Kremlin saying that Prigozhin, the man responsible for that mutiny, is forgiven and that there was this meeting that they had a few days after the attempted mutiny? Maybe I'm too skeptical of what comes out of the Kremlin, but we have seen Kremlin adversaries, you know, mysteriously fall out of windows, accidentally shoot themselves in in the head for for less. Um, Do you believe what the Kremlin's putting out, that Prigozhin's forgiven and that they had this meeting and everything seems fine? Well, first of all, Jake, you are right to be skeptical of what the Kremlin says. Um, And I wouldn't in this case either. But clearly what has happened and what is being reported reflects uh, a certain degree of weakness on Putin's behalf and strength by Prigozhin. I mean, we have to keep in mind that Prigozhin, the Wagner Group, was the only successful Russian unit in the last 18 months of war in Ukraine. Uh, We also have to know that uh, Prigozhin and Wagner are popular within Russia and certainly on on the hard right, which is a political consideration for Putin. And finally, it's the Wagner Group that has uh, operations in several African countries, has operations in Syria and elsewhere that are an extension of Russian foreign policy. So this uh, Prigozhin is not somebody that Putin can just cast aside uh, or or send into exile casually, or at least not now. But at some point, there are going to be more turns and more chapters to play out in this story. And and it's all about uh, Putin and his ability to survive and maintain control in Russia right now. So there was this deal that had been allegedly struck between Putin and the president of Belarus, Lukashenko, uh, and Prigozhin. Is there a chance that Prigozhin's just at large and is ignoring this deal? Sure. It's it's also possible that uh, Prigozhin knows Putin well enough. And of course, they go back to the 1990s in St. Petersburg to know that what uh, what Putin may say and do today may not be what he says and does tomorrow, and and his life is still in to some degree of danger. He did uh, he did uh, form uh, and, and lead an armed rebellion, if you will. Now it wasn't focused on Putin. He was always very clear. It was about the defense minister Sergei Shoigu and the uh, the chief of the general staff Garasimov. But nonetheless, it hurt Putin. It, it undermined him. Uh, Prigozhin's statements about the war being uh, built on a lie and, and about enriching the Russian military and oligarchs all that undermined Putin. So. Again, I think there's more of this to play out. Prigozhin is smart to, to play careful if that's indeed what he's doing. What do you make of President Biden's decision to send Ukraine cluster munitions? Obviously, they're controversial. They can unintentionally harm civilians. Uh, do you think it was the right move? Smart call. I think it was long overdue. Look, we know about the concerns with uh, cluster munitions, but Russia and Ukraine have been using them on the battlefield in Ukraine now for, for quite some time. U.S. Uh, cluster munitions have a very low dud rate, which is important. And and look, at the end of the day, uh, Ukraine is fighting for its survival. Its people are being killed by all types of weapons, uh, and they're being executed and raped and murdered. If the if the Democratic elected leader of that country is asking for help and using cluster munitions, then I think we should uh, we should support him in this fight. And so that's why I think it was the right call. So Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has blocked more than two hundred military. Promotions. He's doing this. These are non-political positions. These are career military. He's protesting uh, the Pentagon's policy that if you live in, it doesn't matter. You can have access to abortion uh, if you are a soldier, or um, but it, whether you're in a red state or a blue state, um, they'll, they'll make uh, accommodations. Uh, what do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that the Marine Corps has no confirmed leader right now? Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin um, addressed this today, 
as the, the current uh, commandant uh, stepped down. Take a listen. We have a sacred duty to do right by those who volunteer to wear the cloth of our nation. I am also confident that the United States Senate will meet its responsibilities. The Pentagon says they're engaging with Tuberville's office. How would you address this? How would you handle this if you were Secretary of Defense? As you know, these are, again, these are non-political positions, people in the military whose promotions are just being held up because this one senator doesn't like a Pentagon political policy. And, you know, all these people who have dedicated their lives to service, their families are just in the balance here. Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important to say that uh, Senator Tuberville does have a serious policy issue of concern regarding abortion and who pays for it. It's a matter of concern for him and many of his constituents. So I, I don't mean to uh, take any, anything away from that. But that said, it's a policy issue determined by the civilian political leaders at the Pentagon and at the White House. And so uh, I've argued, I've said, uh, I joined my other uh, previous secretaries of defense. We wrote a letter in May to uh, Senator Schumer and Senator McConville saying to, that, that it's important to move these uh, nominations along because it's important to our military readiness and could affect our national security at some point. Because at the end of the day, the other part of this is I don't believe that our uniform military should be used as political pawns. And that's what's being ha- what's what's happening here. They're being held hostage. Not the first time it's happened. It happened uh, uh, during my tenure when uh, Senator Duckworth held up over a thousand nominees for promotion. Uh, but it shouldn't happen because all it is is politi- uh, um, uniform officers being used as political pawns in what is a policy debate that is the responsibility of civilian political leadership, not the uniform military. All right. Former Secretary of Defense Mark Asper, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Since it's beginning, the beginning of the counteroffensive in mid-May, the Ukrainian military has liberated about 65 square miles of territory from the Russians. For perspective, that's a, that's a little smaller than the city of Washington, D.C. New recruits are full of energy and fresh ideas, we are told. It's the weapons that are tired. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is on the eastern front in Ukraine, where Soviet-era weapons just are not cutting it anymore for the Ukrainians. This is practice. Preparing for a battle just a short drive away on Ukraine's eastern front. For an army long trained in the use of Soviet-era weapons, it's a time of transition to the latest arms to arrive from the West. An American-made grenade launcher and an American-made 50 caliber machine gun. This exercise is designed to bring together troops fresh from the front around Bakhmut with new recruits to show them how it's done. Veteran soldier Denise explains the finer points of the machine gun to recruits fresh, but not all young. On the eve of the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, with the counteroffensive here moving ahead slowly, Ukraine is pressing for more help, and the troops here have some ideas. We uh, need many, uh, many weapons, armors, and vehicles. This commander, Kalsain Martin, puts it this way. The Russians have an immense amount of old Soviet weapons, he says. They just throw a massive metal at us. We can't overcome them this way. We need quality and precision. Nearby, other recruits are rehearsing an assault, jumping out of an old Soviet-era armored personnel carrier, advancing under the watchful eye of their sergeant. Mikola served in the Soviet army. 
then drove a tractor for decades before joining the Ukrainian army a year ago. He says NATO should provide something newer than his old Soviet workhorse. It's as old as the two of us. (laughs) Okay, I can believe it. Mikola has simple advice for the new troops. Move fast and stay low. And for NATO, just move fast. The soldiers want NATO to move fast in providing Ukraine with more and better weapons. Ukrainian officials are looking for fast action on Ukraine's request to join NATO. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Any moment, Donald Trump's legal team could respond to the deadline set for today in that classified documents case. We are all sitting here wondering what are they going to say about when the trial should start then? What's actually in that energy drink that your teenager keeps asking for? The new warnings about prime energy drinks and children. In our law and justice lead today, Donald Trump's legal team is facing a deadline. The deadline's today to tell the court when they would like to go to trial in that classified documents prosecution. Trump and his aide, Walt Nada, are facing charges related to alleged mishandling of classified documents. The U.S. Department of Justice has asked for the trial to begin in mid-December, which happens to be one month before the Iowa caucuses, and also the start of a different trial in E. Jean Carroll's other defamation case against Donald Trump. CNN's Paula Reed has been tracking all the developments in this case. Paula, when could we expect to hear the response from the Trump legal team? Well, any minute, Jake, I keep checking my phone. This is the deadline for them to weigh in on the question of when this trial should take place. We know the central tension uh, between the special counsel's office and the Trump team is timing here. Jack Smith has made it clear. He wants a speedy trial, but the former president and Walt Nauta have every incentive to want to try to delay, 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 as he does really at any ongoing legal case that he's been involved in, but the stakes are especially high here. He really wants to delay this until at least after the election. Now, the judge here, she initially just put in a placeholder date of August. We knew that wasn't actually going to be a realistic target for putting on a case like this. But the special counsel has suggested trying to do this trial in December. Clearly, that's several months away. But given the complexity of this case, that still is a a pretty tight timeline. We do not expect the former president will be on board with that. But any minute, we'll get his response and see what he has to say and what he suggests for the right date to begin really the biggest trial uh, of his life. And Paula, tell us about this legal tussle between the special counsel, Jack Smith, and Trump aide, Walt Nodig. What exactly are, are they arguing about? It's a perfect example of this tension over timing and trying to delay things. Walt Nada is asking to postpone a hearing that is scheduled for Friday. Now, this hearing would cover how classified materials will be handled throughout this case. He wants to push it back. But the special counsel is having none of it, calling this, quote, unnecessary and contrary to the public interest. Because, again, they can see all of these little delays, even if it's just a week or two, they add up over time. And, Jake, as you know, it took a month uh, for Walt Nada to be arraigned because that kept getting delayed and delayed. So it appears that Jack Smith and his team, they are really pushing back on these continued efforts by Walt Nada and the former president to try to draw things out. We don't know if they'll be successful until the judge here weighs in and makes a decision. And Jake will be watching very carefully as Judge Cannon makes this decision, because this is, again, a key issue at the heart of this case. Just how long will this take? 
And will this case go to trial before the election or not? All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth is here with me in studio. Uh, first of all, this idea about the case, the classified documents case beginning mid-December, is that realistic? That's what the Justice Department wants. Does that make sense? It's a very tight deadline. It could be realistic if things move apace, as the special counsel has suggested in the scheduling order that they've already submitted. Um, it is a very ambitious deadline and schedule. But what we're waiting for today, as Paul already mentioned, is the response from the defense to the proposed schedule um, and the December trial date that the government has suggested. We're going to get a sense once we see that response from the defense about just how much they're trying to push back the trial and everything that happens between now and trial. We'll get a sense of their strategy in that regard. And we're going to get a sense from the judge when she rules on this initial issue about whether to have this pretrial conference on Friday, how amenable she is to these delays that will compound. So I'm not a lawyer. But I feel like if I were advising President Trump, I would say, try to get it pushed to past November 2024. You can make an argument that this is unprecedented and you need more time and you're going to be running for president, et cetera, et cetera. Is is that something that a judge might entertain? No. I mean, that is not something that goes to the merits of the case. And Jack Smith's office has been very careful to really try to avoid any small fights or things that are unnecessary. They are committed to getting this case to trial as soon as reasonably possible. And you saw that in aspects of the litigation, like the conditions of release. They're they're very amenable to the conditions that the former president requested. But here it matters, right? They are actually pushing back here when it comes to delay because they are committed to getting this case to trial. So do you expect Trump and Walt Nana to be tried separately? That's a really good question. Uh, as, of na- as of now, I expect to see them tried together. We have not yet seen anyone raise uh, a motion for severance or any indication that would point towards severance. However, with this issue of delay now being raised by NADA, joined by or the, the request for the delay was consented to by Trump. But now we're seeing the first inkling of reasons why even the government might potentially be interested in separating them if it would, it would help them get the former president to Trump uh, sooner. But I think as of now, together, but let's see what happens. All right. Fascinating. Jessica Roth, thank you so much for joining us. Also in our Law and Justice League today, the U.S. attorney overseeing the Hunter Biden criminal probe is refuting allegations made by two IRS whistleblowers of political interference in the investigation. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now. Sarah, the U.S. attorney appointed by Trump, we should note, denied these allegations in a letter to members of Congress. Tell us about that. That's right. I mean, these were really big allegations we were hearing from two IRS whistleblowers that there was some kind of political interference in the Hunter Biden criminal probe. So in a new letter to South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican, David Weiss wrote, especially about this special counsel issue, whether he'd ever broached this topic. And he said, to clarify an apparent misconception and to avoid future confusion, I wish to make one point clear. In this case, I have not requested special counsel designation. He goes on to say in this letter that he was never denied the authority to bring charges against Hunter Biden in any jurisdiction, essentially neutering two of the key arguments that these IRS whistleblowers had made. And an attorney for one of the whistleblowers said, you know, it doesn't really matter if Weiss asked to be special counsel or not. What matters is that there were Biden uh, political appointees involved in this case that shouldn't have been. But Jake, as you noted, David Weiss, who oversaw this case and eventually, you know, the agreement for Hunter Biden to plead guilty to do tax related charges is a Trump appointee. 
Now, if you think this is going to be enough to satisfy Republicans, of course, you can think again. Uh, Jim Jordan is already tweeting about this latest Weiss letter. He says at the end of one of his recent tweets, do you trust Biden's DOJ to tell the truth? What Republicans really want is they still want to get this testimony from David Weiss. They want more questions answered up on Capitol Hill, Jake. Biden's DOJ, even though the U.S. attorney was appointed by Donald Trump. That's interesting. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. As the 2024 campaign heats up, could family matters throw a wrench in President Biden's re-election strategy? My panel will weigh in next. In our 2024 lead today, Donald Trump is lashing out at the Republican governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, over her decision to officially staying neutral in the Republican primary field ahead of the first in the nation Iowa caucuses January 15th. But CNN has learned that Trump's criticism comes as his advisors have taken issue with Reynolds' frequent attendance at events for Ron DeSantis. One source telling CNN, quote, by attending all of DeSantis' events and only one of Trump's, she's not really doing a good job of being neutral, unquote. Let's discuss. Um, Jessica, I mean... The Trump people have a point. I mean, she goes to every DeSantis event and only one Trump one. Does it seem like maybe she's tipping her hand a bit? Yeah, I think they have a fair point. If she's going to DeSantis events repeatedly and not attending Trump events, even if she isn't saying I'm endorsing DeSantis, that's the clear message you're going to get from that. Yeah. And Alyssa, we should note, of course, that uh, even while DeSantis was in the view of many Republican officials, possibly even including you at one point, Mm -hmm. possibly, uh, DeSantis has been languishing in the polls. Uh, And now the Wall Street Journal is reporting his campaign is planning to do a pivot, do a series of interviews around policy proposals he might lay out. Um, Do you think that could work? Well, listen, what DeSantis does have is name, ID, and money, uh, 20, uh, 20 million in the last quarter. So that gives him longevity in the race. He can buy some time. It's too early. I think the reports of his demise are overstated. But here's the problem. He ran a primary race to the right of Trump where he seemed like he's advised by people who don't get off the Internet and think Twitter is real life rather than trying to reach many disenfranchised voters like myself who supported Donald Trump once but are looking for something a little different and some future leaning uh, kind of leadership. I'll be curious to see in that if he does any unfriendly networks or if he hangs in the bubble of right wing media. So long as he does that, I think he's going to look like a fighter who's not ready for prime time. So uh, former Congressman Max Rose, you represented, for people who don't know, uh, a swing district uh, mostly uh, comprising Staten Island, which is a it's a swing district. But also, it went for Trump. Sure. When you see the DeSantis campaign, do you see him running to appeal to those voters who are the kind of voters he would need to win to win uh, in a general election? Or do you think by running to Trump's right, he's actually helping Biden, theoretically. It's a very odd strategy because normally what happens in a case like this is someone challenging who's a sitting president. They'll say, I can win. This person lost, I can win. So they'll run to the middle. They'll talk about how they can win some of those voters who maybe were pushed back by Trumpian extremism. DeSantis is doing actually the exact opposite. He's running to the right of Trump, hitting Trump on policy, thinking that he can pull Trump voters away when, in fact... You know, Trump's base is in love with Trump. And it's not a matter of policy. It's a matter of personality. And DeSantis is just, I don't know who's advising him. I'm not sure where this strategy is originating from. But I don't see any chance that he can win the primary, let alone win the general, running to the extreme of Trump's right flank. And Jessica, um, most of the Republican field has avoided going after Trump uh, for fear of alienating his voters. A few exceptions, Congressman Will Hurd. Governor Asa Hutchinson and Governor Chris Christie. Lately, former Vice President Pence, however, has been stepping up criticism 
Today, he hit his former boss over Trump's claim that he could end the Russian war against Ukraine in, in, in 24 hours. Uh, take a look. My former running mate likes to talk about solving it in a day. The, the only way you'd solve this war in a day is if you gave Vladimir Putin what he wanted. There's only one pathway towards success here, and that is to give the Ukrainian military much more quickly than Joe Biden has done what they need okay. to repel the Russian invasion well, we, we and reclaim will, their country. So I don't doubt that this is a principled policy difference that Mike Pence has with Donald Trump. I wonder is it effective in the Republican primary, given the skepticism of the U.S. helping Ukraine in yeah. the, in, among Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I think what Pence has to do is he has to prove that he is running a principled campaign against Donald Trump. He has to be able to show that, you know, he's not necessarily going after these culture war issues that are too contentious. He can't say I'm going to be much more moderate on these culture wars. But talking about these kind of Republican-based issues, I mean, Russia is a Republic, old Republican-based issue. So right. I think that's the lane he's trying to carve out for himself. Because why is he running against his former running mate if he has no disagreements with him on policy? So it's something else, uh, Alyssa, that came uh, it's, it's kind of surprising. Um, well, maybe it shouldn't be, I guess. But um, remember that DeSantis ad attacking Trump uh, for being um, too nice and kind to LGBTQ individuals, protecting their rights, etc. So Bleeding Heartland um, reports that this mailing was sent to some Iowa households over the weekend. It's, it's obviously not sincere. It's uh, thanking Donald Trump for standing up for LGBTQ rights. It calls him a transgender trailblazer. But, but it, it's not from a real LGBTQ group. It actually uses language that opponents of, uh, of the trans community uh, use, referring to biological males and such and such. Um, this is a classic Iowa dirty trick. Uh, what do you think? Well, and by the way, I was someone who supported DeSantis after I spoke out against Donald Trump. And then I see something like this and that incredibly homophobic ad that he put out. And I'm someone who will never be able to support him. Listen, Donald Trump, one of the things that propelled him to victory in 2016 is he didn't wade into some of these culture war issues like marriage equality, which is solved. It's a decision that my generation will not go backward on right, left, center. And DeSantis is kind of playing to this old version of the Republican Party that it's going to end up losing him vote, his votes. 67% of Republicans want to see more protections for the LGBTQ community, not fewer. So, Max, I want to ask you about this column that Maureen Dowd wrote in The New York Times uh, about uh, Biden's seventh grandchild, which he does not acknowledge, uh, even though this little girl was born. There was a DNA test con- confirming that Hunter Biden, uh, the president's son, fathered this daughter. Her name's Navy. Maureen Dowd uh, writes, quote, the president can't defend Hunter on all his other messes and draw the line at accepting one little girl. You can't punish her for something she had no choice about. The Biden should embrace the life Hunter brought into the world, even if he didn't consider her mother, quote, the dating type. I mean, and it is true that the Bidens have not acknowledged this little girl and the Bidens uh, president and first lady Biden refer to their six grandchildren. They have seven grandchildren. Yes, she's right. And, you know, this should come back, ironically, to politics. Joe Biden's greatest strength here in in this presidential race and his greatest strength in the prior one was the fact that he is the person of value. He's the person of family um, and compassion. And there would be, of course, no greater sign of that than for him to acknowledge this child and to treat this child as a member of, of his own family uh, of course, the, the president and Hunter Biden is clearly a troubled individual, and I would never doubt the president's absolute devotion and dedication to his son as a father. I identify with that, but that does not mean that they 
should be implicitly disavowing this child. And that bleeds into the talking points as well. Um, it, it, it's, it's just wrong. And, and we should point out, just for the sake of fairness, that Navy's mom, uh, Hunt, uh, who you know, had the in, uh, incident with Hunter that resulted in this, in this beautiful child, uh, she has uh, been caught up in some far right folks, uh, some that Ziegler guy. And the all only that. the only clean hands here are the child. The child's completely innocent in this. If any like, you know, when people go after Hunter Biden on addiction, most families in America have been touched by addiction. And I think that that kind of repels people. But this is yeah. something an innocent child that had no say in the matter. I think as simple as taking out that line about his six grandchildren and just referring to his grandchildren would go a long way because someday that child will be an adult and they will know their grandfather chose to not acknowledge them. All right. Once, uh, thanks once and all, all, all of you for being here. Really appreciate it. Coming up, it is the uh, popular energy drink of the summer, especially with teens. But doctors and the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have a warning about prime energy drinks. Stay with us. Our health lead now, Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, wants an investigation into how much caffeine is in the popular energy drink called Prime, which apparently has more caffeine than two Red Bulls. Schumer claims social media influencers are are advertising Prime to children. Now, be aware that this is not to be confused with Prime's other drink, which is called Prime Hydration. That's a sports drink that has no caffeine at all. Let's talk about Prime, to, Prime though, with uh, CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell. Meg, how much caffeine is in this energy drink, and, and what are the guidelines for caffeine for children? I mean, Coca-Cola has caffeine. Yeah, it definitely does, but certainly not as much as in this one can. Uh, so 200 milligrams of caffeine in this 12-ounce can of Prime Energy. Now, if you want to put that into context, if you compare it to Coke, that's about six cans of Cokes two cans of Red Bull, or about two eight-ounce cups of coffee. And in terms of the guidelines for kids and caffeine consumption, the American Academy of Pediatrics really recommends kids don't have any caffeine if they're under the age of 12. Kids over the age of 12, they say maybe up to 100 milligrams per day would be okay. And, you know, for comparison to adults, they say about 400 milligrams is okay. That's what the FDA says typically won't affect people too much. But really, there are a lot of health concerns for kids if they consume caffeine. It can affect their sleep, cause dehydration, anxiety, even affect their heart rate, uh, and cause developmental problems that people worry about with cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular issues uh, and neurological systems as well. So aside from there being a lot of caffeine in prime energy, drink. It's also being scrutinized for how it's being marketed. I want to play this quick clip by the two men who back this company, YouTube influencers Logan Paul and KSI. Prime hydration versus prime energy. Caffeinated. Caffeine-free. 20 calories. 10 calories. 2 grams of sugar. Sugar Sugar-free. Carbonated. Non-carbonated. And they both have coconut water? Plus electrolytes. In conclusion, both amazing tasting, better-for-you products. Drink Prime. So what Logan Paul and KSI did not say in that promo is that that drink is not meant for people younger than 18 years old. And it seems clear to me that that's who... They're talking uh, to... So Schumer wants the FDA to get involved. What can they do, if anything? Yeah, so Schumer is really calling on the FDA to investigate both the amount of caffeine that's in the energy drink, because, of course, the other one doesn't have caffeine in it, um, but also the claims that they're making. And I was talking to the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, about this, and he was saying when he was in the role, he did things known as public health advisories. So it's not necessarily a strict warning letter. It's not enforcement. It's just putting information out there so that parents and people know there's caffeine in this and maybe how to differentiate these. And really, the test of whether FDA potentially steps in here is, 
is this affecting kids? Is this harming kids? Uh, is the marketing really bringing kids into this in an inappropriate way? So that's the kind of thing we'd look out for. You know, CNN has heard back from Prime's PR team. Uh, they really emphasize the difference between these two products. Uh, and they note with the energy drink, they say they complied with all FDA guidelines before they hit the market. And they say they state clearly on the packaging as well as in the marketing materials that it's an energy drink and is not made for anyone under the age of 18. They also specify that they're willing to work with the FDA or any else who wants to help with consumer safety yeah i was just looking at the at the can right there i didn't it i, I couldn't see it if i couldn't see it i don't know how much uh, uh, you expect a 12 not you but they expect a 12 year old at the 7-eleven to see it mm-hmm. meg terrell yeah see look look i mean where does it say that it's not for people under 18 i don't i don't see it anyway meg terrell thank you so much coming up what happens when a state has a red flag law but the red flag law is not being used properly we're going to talk to a mom who showed police the guns her daughter's killer had before he used them to kill her. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, Americans woke up today looking at yet another jarring headline involving gun violence in the United States. Eight mass shootings over the weekend, nine dead, more than 30 injured. The Gun Violence Archive marks 371 mass shootings in 2023. What's missing? A solution to stop the bloodshed, at least a viable one. In some states, the big focus is on red flag laws. These are designed to temporarily take guns away from those who may pose a danger to themselves or to others and to prevent them from buying new guns. But as CNN's chief investigative correspondent Pamela Brown reports for us now, there are major obstacles to enforcing red flag laws, even in states that have embraced them. Vanessa Salgado's nightmare began last spring in her Albuquerque home. He was molesting my daughter. Salgado learned her live-in boyfriend, Bradley Wallen, had been sexually assaulting her 16-year-old daughter, Alexia, for years. She called the sheriff's department. We're going to try to get an emergency restraining order. On the body cam video, you can hear Alexia telling deputies about an argument. He was telling me that I had been acting like I had an attitude towards him. I couldn't keep it in, and I said, it's because you sexually assaulted me. And then he got out of his car, and he admitted what he did. He told me it was wrong. Weeks later, Wallen spotted Alexia's car at a shopping center. He shot and killed her and her cousin, Mario Salgado, and then turned the gun on himself. It was Mother's Day. No parent wants to lose a child. No parent wants to see their child gone before them. Honestly, I wish he would have took me let her live. Vanessa says she had told law enforcement Wallen owned guns. The restraining order she filed against him lists two firearms. And I literally opened up the drawer that had the guns in it and showed the officer. And did the officer say anything about whether those guns could be taken away? No. These two were inseparable. What Vanessa didn't know then is that New Mexico passed a red flag law, which allows firearms to be temporarily taken away from those deemed dangerous to themselves or others. Deputies escorted Wallen as he retrieved his weapons from the home, along with his belongings. I said I was concerned he possibly might commit suicide. So you told law enforcement you were worried he would commit suicide? Yes, ma'am. That alone should have allowed Vanessa or the police to file what's called an extreme risk firearm protection order or gun restraining order. But she was never told of that option. I just wish I would have known. So I would have had the right path 
to protect my daughter and my nephew. The system failed on, on all facets. Sheriff John Allen wasn't in office last year when the murders happened, but he says there was a breakdown in the process. She did convey that he could harm himself. That seems to be an example of when guns should be taken away under this law, right? Correct. So was it a mistake they weren't? I don't think it was communicated correctly. The information wasn't relayed to the district attorney's office enough, and that could be from our detectives, that could be from family, that could be from witnesses, that could be from victims. What happened to the Salgado family is a key example of how difficult it can be to implement these life-saving laws in some states. Records obtained by CNN show New Mexico's red flag law has only been used about 30 times since it took effect in 2020. As a comparison, Florida's similar law has been utilized more than 11,000 times since it was enacted in 2018. It's difficult for people to understand how to enforce the law. Education and training hasn't gone around the state like it should have. Of the 21 states that have red flag laws on the books, New Mexico is by far the most gun violent. It's a blue state that is mostly rural, yet it has the third highest gun mortality rate per capita in the U.S. Even with that violence, New Mexico sheriffs petitioned against the passage of the law and created Second Amendment sanctuary counties where it wouldn't be enforced. A judge weighs every decision, but because red flag laws are relatively new, there tends to be misinformation. It's not law enforcement filing in a vacuum. There is a judge looking at the, the facts of the case and then making a determination based on that. Studies show red flag laws can work to defuse potential violence. The key is making sure people know about them. I just want to have a voice for my kids, and I want this story to be told. And hopefully it, it will save another mother that's going through the same thing I'm going through. Red flag laws temporarily disarmed more than 660 people in six states who threatened to kill multiple people. That's according to a recent Johns Hopkins study. Of course, no one is suggesting that all of those people would have gone on to commit murder, but experts say if even a small percentage of those lives were saved, the laws are worth enforcing. Jake? Pamela Brown, thank you so much for that important reporting. Coming up next, the 100 million reasons Elon Musk might be worried about a new social media app on the market. But first, here is CNN's Wolf Blitzer with what is next in the Situation Room. Wolf? Jake, I'll be joined in the Situation Room by New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Her state, which is my home state, digging out right now from devastating floods after storms dumped up to eight inches of rain in just 24 hours. And the danger, by the way, is not over yet. Much of the Northeast is bracing for even more rain tonight. Nine million Americans are under flood alert right now. All of that, much more coming up right at the top of the hour, right here in the Situation Room. In the tech lead, do you remember when Facebook came along and put MySpace to shame? Well, the new social media site called Threads might, might, might be on its way to doing the same to Twitter. Threads is not even a week old, and it already has more than 100 million users. At this pace, it could surpass Twitter's audience size. Threads is owned by Meta, the same company that owns Facebook and Instagram. The analytics company called Cloudflare tracks web traffic, and it says Twitter has been plunging in popularity for months. So I have a brand new thriller. It's coming out tomorrow. It's called All the Demons Are Here. It's a wild ride through a bizarre era for our nation, the 1970s. It has Evel Knievel and Elvis, post-Watergate mistrust of the government, 
cults, disco, the summer of Sam, UFO sightings, more. I would be honored if you would check it out. You can pre-order it now. It will hit bookstores Tuesday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite, TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead, CNN. Our coverage continues now with the Great Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.